Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, today is many things, including the last day of Kion Wolf's vacation. So uh, presumably on Monday or Tuesday or next week, you'll start hearing her voice and introductions once again. I know you've missed them for two weeks. Uh, meanwhile, we're also doing an unusual uh, episode of The Nose. Usually The Nose is uh, we have three people in studio with me, and we just uh, we kick around a series of topics that we've kind of pre-vetted. Uh, we're going to do something different here. We did it uh, for David Letterman. We're going to do it for John Stewart. These are uh, GMs that are produced by Jonathan McNichol. And yes, there's been an awful lot of John Stewart coverage, a lot of John Stewart hagiography. Hey, Although in a way, he, he, he with his impeccable timing, uh, in a way, if he really wanted to be like the big story, which I, I don't think he necessarily did, he couldn't have picked a worse night to have as his last night because of the devil. Of course, the, the Republican primary is suck, uh, the debate is uh, sucking up an awful lot of oxygen here. But uh, I think there are things to be said about this legacy that have not been said so far. I hope you agree. I hope you're staying with us as we go along here. If you've got things you want to say, you know the number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. We've got great people to say those things. A little bit later in the show, you'll meet Miles Kahn. Uh, he was a field producer for The Daily Show from 2006 until April of this year when he essentially made the same decision that John Stewart uh, made. Enough is enough. Uh, but anyway, we'll come to uh, Miles. He'll tell you a little bit about how those famous field producers, uh, field pieces were produced, how they were assembled, what kind of input Stewart had into them, uh, just also generally what it was like to work there, which was a big theme, I think, of last night's farewell. Uh, but right now we're starting with David Fulkenflick. He is the NPR's media correspondent uh, and in studio with me. He's uh, David, by the way, is in the studio for NPR in New York. And in studio with me is Bill Curry. Uh, he's a, a columnist for Salon. This week's column is about John Stewart. Um, so, um, David, I, I, I'm going to begin. I mean, I think we do need to spend a little bit of time. Not that uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time reinventing a wheel that's been rolling around uh, on a lot of other programs for a lot of other days. But we do need to spend at least a minute or two just talking about the way in which, uh, for me, at a certain point watching The Daily Show, I thought, I suddenly realized, wow, what they're doing now is rolling out stories that they're their viewers don't necessarily know. In other words, um, political comedy on television for my entire lifetime consisted of a comedian coming on and jumping on a trope that was already out there, uh, an idea that everybody already had. It was usually a pretty simple and basic idea. You know, Bill Clinton's a horny guy. Uh, George W. Bush is really stupid. Um, what they were doing suddenly was something that I'd never seen, which was rolling out a fairly complicated story, a piece of legislation before Congress, a speech somebody gave, an incident that happened somewhere, introducing the audience to it, and then working it for laughs. And I, I don't know about you, I, I thought, wow, this is kind of revolutionary. I mean, a, a new news story as the basis for comedy. Yeah, I mean, look, they they're, they're uh, you know, field segments of the kind you're talking about. Sometimes they would be done uh, by Stewart in, in studio. I can remember one. I don't even remember what year it was, but Stephen Colbert did one on, I think it was the council in uh, Cary, North Carolina, uh, not far from where I used to live in uh, Durham, North Carolina. And they had passed something, I think, against 
uh, adopting French or some such thing. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, he goes there as a true red-blooded patriot, uh, you know, hopeful to, to prevent, uh, you know, the insidious influence of French seeping into America. I believe it must have been after uh, the French didn't support us in the way that we wanted uh, in Iraq. And, uh, you know, by the end of it, he's face down in a gutter drinking from, you know, one wine bottle after another to try to get rid of all the, the French wine they had. You know, the thing to me that struck me so much is I remember watching The Daily Show under uh, uh, Craig Kilborn, you know, former ES. ESPN host who was always a bit of a wiseacre and a funny guy and who did a decent job with the idea of sending up the news while at the same time doing jokes in, in, about figures in popular culture. But he was much more likely to reach for those obvious Bill Clinton, uh, you know, is chasing skirts jokes. And and it seemed to me that, you know, uh, Stewart took over a few years later, but with uh, the contested 2000 election, with 9-11 ultimately with uh, the invasion of Iraq and with the financial crisis, there were major stories where he was addressing the topic that was front of mind, but doing it in a ways that, you know, peeled off all these layers of uh, insipidity or all these layers of euphemism or all these layers of, uh, of uh, deflection or, or disingenuousness to get at oftentimes what the stories were about past the rhetoric and do it in very funny ways. You know, he he would always say, I'm just a humorist, but he was a humorist with a point, sometimes ideological, more often than not just intended to puncture uh, the pompousness and the gas baggery that was happening. And to me, that was what was memorable was I was like, my God, this guy's doing something very different here. And I think you really started to see that first off in the in those 2000 elections. Yeah. And, but sometimes at the top of the show piece, he'd explain something like LIBOR or some like really complicated thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and then insist that there was something actually funny about it. So, Bill Curry, I know one of the things that you feel as though in some ways – the two-party dialogue broke down around a lot of things. That that the Democratic Party, I mean, particularly around 2003, the invasion into Iraq, they really weren't an opposition party in the way of a traditional opposition party. One of the things you say in your piece, uh, I think, is that Stewart wound up doing what theoretically might have been their job. Uh, I would say lots of things were happening happening at, at the same time, and one of which was the, the 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 boiling of public anger that he was tapping into. And the second thing was that politics was be- becoming even more hollow and more useless than it had been. And, you know, people who you know, people who hated 30-second ads applauded politicians for tweeting, which is – which, you know, only – which gives, uses half as many syllables. Uh, and everything was reduced to messaging and sloganeering. And one of the things he was doing, he was, he, he, he was not just uh, uh, departing – he was not just filling a, a, creating a new role for comedians – he was he was taking on a role that that progressives no longer were playing. He was making reasoned argument. It was the part of him not just that went back to his comedy seller friends, but you know to Mark Twain and Voltaire and Joseph Heller and really planting the flag and trying to show you not just that these people were pompous, which all political humor had done, but that they were lying, and not just that they were obscuring things, but what it was that they were obscuring. And he was doing it at a time when people who might otherwise have done so were tiptoeing around everything. And so it became incredibly important. And so, David, uh, the argument sometimes is made that what you do and what Stewart did 
often were the same jobs, press criticism. I mean, it, we we maybe did see some fairly primitive forms of political humor. Uh, we saw the Smothers Brothers. Bill mentions that in his article. We saw um, other stuff that really you could call political commentary. But rarely did anybody go after the messengers themselves, the news media, uh, on the on the field of political satire. So suddenly what you do and what Stewart did, I think, did you have a conversation with Rob Cordry about this at one point? Yeah, I ran into him uh, at a an event. It might have been a White House correspondence dinner in the early 2000s. I stopped going to them about a dozen years ago. But I, I saw him, and I stopped him, introduced myself, talked for a few minutes, and then said, you know, you guys are going after my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. And he says, well, we're having a good time. I was like, yeah, but you guys have a point, too. He's like, sure, well, there's so much fodder there. And, you know, what they were saying was they were sitting targets. Uh, last night you saw a Wolf Blitzer uh uh, participate in sort of the gentle skewering of Stewart by various public figures he's made fun of. And I got to say, Wolf Blitzer's not a dumb guy. He's a very smart guy. But on uh, the air, he often seems uh, just unfathomably credulous to the clearest, you know, lies or dissembling or, or rhetoric that you could imagine. And Stewart, you know, just doesn't have a high tolerance for that. One of the things I think that, that Bill said that was absolutely right in talking about the war was also the notion of, you know, where you could find a place that the media or, or, or political figures could open space for dissenting views. I mean, one of the things I've gone back and sort of read things I wrote at the time, I started out at the Baltimore Sun as a media critic, uh, in 2000, was that it really was Comedy Central where you first started to see uh, in mainstream conversation, con- uh, uh, discussion of points of view that opposed the war. Chris Rock talked about this when he was appearing on uh, in 2003, and he said, you know, gosh, every time I'd say, you know, I, I'm uncomfortable with the invasion or I oppose it, I'm accused of not supporting the troops. And you would see that kind of rhetoric from people even at CNN. Stewart took more seriously the idea that you could have in your head, and I think he really showed it in future years, his devotion to troops and uh, going again and again in support of them, raising money, doing other things. But the idea that you could support the troops and still have problems with the idea of the invasion or, or, or certainly the execution after. Um, one of the things that he did repeatedly, and and so I'm going to uh, – I'll push back a little bit against some of this. I'm a huge John Stewart fan, but I feel like it's my job to push back against the hagiography. Hey, so, Who do you think you are, John Stewart? Exactly. <laughs> Somebody's got to do this, and John Stewart can't do it. So um, – one of the things he would repeatedly do is what I, some somebody referred to as the "ooh little me" thing, which is like I'm just a comedian. Uh, it, it, whenever the going got kind of tough and rough, he would often say, I, "Well, I'm really I'm I'm not a news commentator. I'm a comedian." Um, and it's, it, you could argue, Bill, that he was trying to have it both ways, right? Making really substantive points about news, and then every once in a while darting back behind the comedian shrubbery. Was was that okay to do? Uh, pretty much. I think, you know, it, it just, yes, it's it's a dodge. It's not a really big dodge. And and, and I, he's been called on it many times. And, and my thought always is that it's partly true. You know, when he said to Tucker Carlson, you know, the, the, the lead in show to mine is uh, puppets making crank calls, uh, that uh, that it is amazing that he himself must have been it's many times privately amazed that he was filling two roles, one of the press, of the critical press, as you said, and also of political leaders. He was actually filling in for both the politicians and the press doing what they were supposed to be doing. I love the close of his show, uh, the, the last line, you know, if, if you smell something, say something. Mm. It was the perfect end. The overarching theme was hypocrisy. And as I said, he said he, he not only wanted to unveil it, he wanted to clarify what was being obscured by it. Uh, and so, you know, the first is the press role. The second is the political role. Nobody was doing either. And the fact that he was doing it 
in uh, in in uh, as a satirist uh, and and often not even as just a very broad comedian. Um, I think that is, I think that is some legitimate cover in space, uh, and I I think that does hold him to a somewhat different standard. Um, so he used it as a dodge, but it was kind of a legitimate dodge. Um, David, I, I know you have some thoughts about this as well. Sure. I mean, uh, it's it's interesting. I've talked to people, including uh, Glenn Beck uh, and Rush Limbaugh, over the years, and I've I've participated in some ways. I once posed that very question to Bill Maher, uh, you know, of HBO's Real Time, uh, when he was speaking at the Hearst Corporation uh, some months back, and I, I think it's a perfectly valid question. I do think that the John Stewart that we know now was not the John Stewart who started out. Yes. I think that he's always had uh, thoughts and he's always had a keen mind, but he's really evolved over the years and he's really found his voice in a couple of different ways. And so the the posture that might have been truer in 1999 or whenever it was when he had his first show might not feel the same that uh, way this week after he's so greatly influenced uh, the decisions of of cable chieftains to cancel crossfire of people like uh, President Obama, who's invited him to the White House twice to sort of make his case for various uh, policy positions and and why he feels that he's been effective, even if Stewart's been kind of skewering him on said subjects on the show. Uh, I don't, for example, think that he's such a political figure or such a journalistic figure that it's outrageous that he met with the president to talk about these things. After all, the president's met with uh, columnists of both liberal and conservative persuasions, and I don't think it it renders them incapable of doing their jobs. Uh, But, you know, Stewart is playing a role, but he is a, a satirist who has a point to make as opposed to somebody like Rush Limbaugh who has a point to make but sometimes does it with satire. Now, you may say ultimately at the end of the day the, the fulcrum is in such a position on the on the seesaw that the, the difference shouldn't be that great. It's just whether or not you happen to agree with them or like their brand of humor and of ideology. But I think Stewart uh, uh, did a pretty decent job of trying to be true to the facts. Uh, he wasn't fair in the sense of he is a satirist and it's not his job to be fair. But he was fair-minded in the sense that if somebody was being uh, uh, hypocritical – uh, he would go after him. He just clearly had a point of view where he was coming from, and that became clearer over the years. I'm going to make the argument that to, to both of you, I'll start with you, Bill, that um, you can look at John Stewart and say, you know, ultimately, though, even a guy as admirable and courageous and authentic as this, it's really hard for this guy to rise above the game, to get up over the game. I was looking at sort of who his most frequent guests were. Well, his, uh, the number one guest was Fareed Zakaria. It was on 19 times. Fareed Zakaria, speaking of people, Fareed Zakaria went and, quote-unquote, brainstormed with the Paul Wolfowitz group prior to the invasion of Iraq when Fareed Zakaria was at least nominally or supposedly a journalist. Um, the other two top guests were Dennis Leary, well, longtime friend of, of Stewart's, and Brian Williams. So, you know, in a way, we talk a lot about with Brian Williams about the confusion and the conflation of entertainment and journalism. We talk about our uh, the fact that guys like that muddy the waters too much. But in a way, does, does Stewart ever really get up above that game? I mean, if Brian Williams is his third most popular guest, you, you have to think that he, he's evinced a kind of taste for people who like to muddy the waters between entertainment and journalism. Um, sure. I, I just if, if, for, let me say, let, let me point out a couple of things, though. First of all, uh, when when Glenn Beck's and and Rush Limbaugh's uh, defenders uh, are, are uh, call them those guys entertainers, they're making excuses for the fact that they lie. <laughs> and when uh, Stewart's uh, people call him uh, uh, mention that he's a comedian entertainer, 
he, he's looking for cover for telling the truth. Uh, it's it, it's actually two very different defenses, and uh, uh, but but telling it more baldly sometimes or telling it with a point of view. Um, I agree with everything you said. I, I, I said in my column that that Stewart. I agree very much with what David said earlier. Also, that Stewart has grown in this, and the the, the show probably changed him as much as he changed the show from everything you can see, at least of his resume. Uh, and and you know, I, if 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 that's true, he's. I, I think he's like David Letterman. And a, this very small club of people who actually became better people as a result of being on television. Uh, toward the end, though, I think it's also true that he had this sort of Jimmy Fallon thing going. He became a person who was more likely to, you know, he 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 started to like the celebrities a little too much for my own taste, and uh, you know, and and he you know he he sometimes was a little softer on his friends. Uh, there's a you know he 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 wasn't perfect at what he did, uh, but he redefined. All of the fundamental rules of this game upward mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the bulk of his career, and that's why he's getting so much attention as he as he walks off. Although, David, from your point of view, I, I, I find my thoughts suddenly going to um, an episode of The Wire where I think it's <laughs> the the, the uh, bunny, the guy, the police uh, captain who really tries to something oh, really novel. Yeah. And then the end of it all, everybody's back on their corner selling the same drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And he has to look at that and say, "It just I tried, and it just didn't matter." And you know, is there any part of Stewart? Stewart's end that that's a little bit like that. I mean, Fox News hasn't changed, CNN hasn't changed, the politicians sure, sure. haven't changed. I mean, did, did anything change? Well, and you saw uh, Roger Ailes taking kind of a, a victory lap in the Hollywood Reporter uh, this week, saying you know, uh, saying seemingly nice things about Stewart as a way of kind of uh, turning the knife on him and saying you know we don't pay that close attention, but he's a funny guy, and uh, you know he seemed to want to have an effect, but he didn't really bruise us, uh, and really just making it uh, uh, him as uh, marginal a character as possible. I don't think you can look at Stewart and say he's had no effect on the culture. I think he's raised the game in terms of satire, in terms of political observation, even as a lot of opinion has gotten flabby, I think, because of the proliferation of conduits of opinion, on, uh, particularly digitally. Uh, I think that uh, uh, if you look at Stephen Colbert, if you look at uh, John Oliver, uh, I think that you've got two very sharp-minded people who have, in very different ways, uh, taken on very similar issues and and found their voices almost like a nightingale hearing a, a song for the first time. Uh, and uh, uh, although Colbert will be doing a slightly more mainstream uh, presentation and taking over for David Letterman on CBS, I'm very interested to see the degree to which he infuses his comedic sensibility and political impulses, uh, even as casting aside uh, you know the right wing blowhard role that that he's been playing for so long. You know, I, I think you know with Stewart. You know, you say he's he. You know, I, I was not the biggest fan of his celebrity interviews when it wasn't somebody that he had some connection with. Uh, I thought he was much more interesting with political figures. I thought he was interesting with even the comic folks that he liked a lot: Judd Apatow, Paul Rudd, Will Ferrell. You know, people that he had a connection with because you could just there was some electric kind of fun current feeling as though you were almost not quite, but almost partic- observing the conversation they'd have even if the cameras weren't there. Almost. Uh, with Stewart, you know, there's something in the sense of uh, like when I watch a Steven Spielberg movie, uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan or uh, even uh, a Schindler's List, which were brilliant movies. 
there may be one or two scenes in each that you're like, gosh, that's a little too much. It's a little too emotional for me. But you think, my God, the guy has held me riveted on, on a painful topic for so many hours. I'm going to give him a scene maybe that I wish he had done slightly differently because overall this is an incredible, incredible production. And with Stewart, yeah, he did like to talk to people like Fareed Zakaria and Brian Williams. I think he saw Zakaria in particular, but perhaps also Williams as kinds of public intellectuals, people who could translate uh, complicated topics into, you know, processable and absorbable ways without insulting their intelligence. My sense with Williams also was that he was a frequent substitute guest when other people bailed out. (laughs) And so, you know, the fact that he was there 16 times was in some ways as a favor to Stewart, but it tells you something about the then managing editor of the NBC Nightly News and the chief anchor of the NBC Nightly News that he was willing to dart out and go from, uh, you know, 6th and uh, call it 49th Street here in New York to, you know, to something like 9th or 10th Avenue, which is not an inconsiderable walk and at the wrong time of day can be an even longer drive, uh, you know, to dart out there and to come back just for the sake of uh, helping Stuart out. He loved that forum. And I think, he, uh, you know, Stewart was the flame and and Williams was the moth rather than vice versa. You know, um, Bill, it also might be the case that to whatever extent Stewart did change anything, it's going to be at a finely grained level. I mean, Fox News is going to continue to be Fox News. But I even think about the night, I think it was the last presidential election night, where Megyn Kelly uh, wondered whether Karl Rove was telling the truth about numbers. And she she confronted him. Then she did this kind of walk down to the boiler room. It looked a little bit kabuki, a little bit choreographed. On the other hand, I sort of thought, I wonder if you'd have that moment if there were no Jon Stewart, if he hadn't really kind of shot at their feet a little bit. I also wonder whether somebody like Rachel Maddow would have risen as fast as she did uh, at MSNBC if Jon Stewart hadn't said, you know what, you've got to make this stuff a little snappier, a little bit. Yeah, you've got to engage people in a different way. Maybe those are some of his legacies. One, Stewart really is, uh, uh, you, you can make the strong argument that he really is the centrist who held his ground while the country was moving right. Another thing that was going on during his last 20 years of his life, uh, he's the guy who voted for George Herbert Walker Bush uh, because he seemed like a decent person. And and that issue of uh, of, of hypocrisy is about the center of it. He, he told Rachel Maddow that, the, that, that it's not – the question isn't left versus right but corrupt versus uh, uncorrupt. Uh, and, uh, uh, and his last two shows – uh, his last two big comedy pieces, one, as I said, was re- telling people to stay vigilant about hypocrisy, and the other was a long riff on what he hadn't gotten done, that every, nothing had changed and he'd been a complete failure. And, you know, obviously the truth lies somewhere in between. Watching Kelly last night uh, and watching that debate, I wondered, I, having having read the same remarks of Roger Ailes that David talked about, I, w- I wondered, would these moderators have been so tough on these Republican candidates had the bar not been raised somewhat, uh, uh, if you watch the earlier debate, as I also did, I have no life, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they were doing it pretty much the old way, just cheerleaders for the audience and for the candidates who were there, not asking anybody a hard question, uh, uh, being utterly formulaic. But when they got to the big show that night, uh, certainly Wallace and, and, and Kelly and Breyer, all three of them asked very, very tough pointed questions. And so I would, you know, my guess is, my, my instinct is, that if Roger Ailes was watching uh, and didn't see a little bit of John Stewart in his own employees, he was probably missing something. 
So, um, David Falkenflick, one of the things that Stu- Stuart, first of all, one thing you have to say about him, he's really good at being on television. He's been on television a really long time. He's He was a television figure even before this started. I remember I uh, used to watch the Larry Sanders show, and he was this kind of running right. joke on the Larry Sanders show. He was the guy that Larry was worried about, and he, he played a character named John Stewart, who was the up-and-coming guy who was most likely to bump Larry out of his throne. So he's been on television a long time. He's really good at using television. So, And one of the things that he did was he took a technique that reporters have known about for years. In fact, in the clip, this is a clip that David, I, I think, picked out in particular. Particular, You're going to hear Gloria Borger sort of try to do what reporters typically do when they're interviewing somebody who's saying something that seems kind of inconsistent. She's talking to Dick Cheney. Uh, he's, he's saying stuff that she feels is a contradiction to, uh, to what he said in the past. But all she can really do is say, well, you said this. Stewart, because he's so good at using television, is able to do something else. And so, actually, Betsy, let's hear that. One thing we had is the uh, the uh, Czech intelligence service report saying that uh, Mohammed Atta had met with a senior Iraqi intelligence official at the embassy on April 9th, 2001. That's never been proven. It's never been refuted. For the record, the 9-11 Commission said of the alleged Iraq Atta encounter or meeting, we do not believe that such a meeting occurred. But still, that's okay, because Vice President Cheney never said such a meeting occurred. He just said that you couldn't prove that it hadn't. He never acted like Atta (laughs) had had that meeting and that meeting had been confirmed. Am Am I right? You have said in the past that it was, quote, pretty well confirmed. No, I never said that. Okay. I think that that. is... Absolutely not. He absolutely never said that. Hmm. It's been pretty well confirmed that he did go to Prague and he did meet with uh, a senior official of the Iraqi intelligence service in Czechoslovakia last April. Mr. Vice President, I have to inform you, your pants are on fire. So, so David, this is and this is all, of course, accompanied by uh, Stewart's incredible arsenal of vocal mannerisms, strokings of the chins, popping of the eyes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you just can't see on the radio that he's doing to amplify this. And and I mean, Gloria Borger has the goods in that interview. She has the exact same thing that John Stewart this is, uh, has. She just can't deploy it. Right? He's found this whole new way to deploy it that really does blow somebody up right on the air. I mean, I give her credit. She's getting him on the record to address that in such a way that other people can hold him accountable. Uh, She at that time was with CNBC, now with CNN. Uh, And she's doing it based on quotes. We can't see it without the captions on radio. But the the last thing you heard from Cheney was him talking on the sister station, NBC's Meet the Press. And that's where Cheney, you know, in his deepest of deep voice and serious warning says, you know, we now know that there was this meeting that took place, of course. And as Stewart points out, the... 9-11 9-11 Commission says there's no – they're not convinced at all. They, they are, in fact, convinced that it did not happen. Uh, this, I thought, was very devastating. I remember it at that moment. I remembered it when talking with uh, Jonathan McNichol, your colleague, a day or two ago uh, in preparation for our conversation today because it was an act of journalism. It's not necessarily being committed by somebody we think of as a pure journalist or who considers himself that. And I think he is one of the – a number of folks who play in this realm of public discourse that remind you that the question who's a journalist no longer matters that much. It's, is he contributing to public debate and understanding of the issues? Actually, he is. 
And what he's doing is he's holding people responsible for their own utterances, not to trip them up, not because it's simply a gaffe. That's a different part of the show. That's his, the shticky part of the show that's really more about shtick. This is not that he said something embarrassing. This is that he said something that is completely untrue, and it's untrue with consequences because the kind of warning that the vice president was offering back then was intended to scare the public and Congress into giving uh, – you know, giving the White House uh, essentially a green light to go and invade Iraq under seemingly false pretenses. And while people can say other factors went into case, that was a big part of it, the idea that there was somehow some kind of link between uh, the folks who attacked us on 9-11 and our decision to invade Iraq and Saddam Hussein. So that was the rolling of the tape. The one thing that Gloria Borger didn't do was say, well, Mr. Vice President, you know, I, I am prepared for you not to acknowledge what you said. So let's roll this tape together. You used to see that occasionally on 60 Minutes. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, uh, Tim Russert used to do that on, on Meet the Press himself. But I got to say, mm-hmm. in my newsrooms at the Baltimore Sun, particularly here doing broadcast at NPR over the past 10 plus years, I talk with colleagues all the time about techniques that, that Stuart and his producers used on that show to allow people's words to be used either against them or to propel arguments or disprove points. It is... It is very simple conceptually, but it's very, very, very powerful. All right. Did you add? Well, I, one thing that I wanted to bring up, maybe you can react to this and fold your answer into it is, and then we got to, we really got to take a break. Uh, Miles Kahn's ready to go. We're starting to get some calls here, too. Um, is that the other thing that Stewart brought to this that the Gloria Borgers and even the Mike Wallace's of the world can't bring is this incredible vernacular style of delivery. I mean, first of all, I think this is this show also broke a barrier by being, I think, probably the first show, first late night show where it was sort of understood and planned that the host would drop like 10, 15, 20 F-bombs and MF-bombs and everything else over the course of, of the night, and they would all be bleeped out, but everybody would know what was being said, um, that he also used kind of the vernacular of the younger generation that watched him, so everything was kind of, oh, snap! You know, he was always sort of like a little bit hipper than most people his age in, in a way of sort of being able to bring that stuff in. And then this huge repertoire of comic skills, ways he used his voice, ways he used his face. I mean... Having that and then the kind of goods that David's talking about right there, it really is a a devastating one-two punch, more even maybe than the sum of the two parts. Yeah, first of all, all that comedy is, you know, it works. And and so much comedy, not all comedy, but so much comedy is subversive. As I said in my piece, every time Harpo Marx squeezed a clown horn, somebody somewhere questioned authority. And all that that tone uh, matters. Uh, and it's not so unusual. We, we would be looking both for the co- in, in lieu of mainstream press leadership and in lieu of mainstream political leadership. This happens all the time. I, you know, I, I said that, and also there, I compared it to the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. I remember where uh, the great Tom Stoppard says that, that you know music led it, the musicians led it. In in America, in the progressive era, it was journalists. It was the Ida Tarbells and Upton Sinclairs who often sometimes ran for office. In fact, in different cases. Uh, there was a mixing of the roles, and you and and you have it here. When when the Democrats won't even you know, uh, when the Republicans in, in investigate Benghazi a hundred times, but a Democratic administration in Congress can't have one commission looking into how we lied our way into the Iraq War, then there's a huge void to be filled, and he was filling that void as well. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. We'll come back after this. I have fine bone density. The point is this: we add insult, not injury. Hey, John, there's one other thing. What's that? The thing we always say. Ooh, 
I forgot about it. One, two, one, two, three. All right, we're talking about John Stewart, uh, and uh, we've been talking to David Folkenflik. Uh, he's in one of the uh, NPR studios in New York. He is NPR's media correspondent. Bill Curry is uh, playing the part of Bill Curry on today's show. He's a columnist for Salon, wrote about uh, John Stewart this week. We're also going to add to the conversation Miles Kahn, who's probably one of the few people who attended last night's party, who's up right now at 1 o'clock. Um, <laughs> but uh, congratulations. I hope you're full of coffee and, uh, and Pedialyte. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm still, I'm not going to lie, I'm still feeling it a little bit. Right. So, Miles Kahn, uh, field producer for The Daily Show from 2008 uh, to April of this year. Um, maybe actually one of, uh, maybe one of the things that we can do is, before we even uh, talk to Miles, is let you hear a little bit of his work. So, uh, we're going to play a clip uh, from a segment called Last Gay Standing. This is a, a clip in which uh, Al Madrigal uh, went with Miles to the south, to uh, Alabama and Mississippi. The pretext being... Uh, which state would be the last state to confer some basic rights on, on on gays? Which state was the most virulently and viciously anti-homosexual? Um, and well, actually, we'll play a little of the piece, and then maybe Miles can tell us a little bit about how something like that gets put together. In this corner, from the state that still has segregated sororities, Alabama lawyer Doug Jones. With regard to same-sex marriage, Alabama will be the last state to ratify, if we ever ratify. And in the other corner, from the state with a Confederate flag, inside their own state flag, Mississippi columnist Slim Smith. Mississippi will be last, and we'll get there kicking and screaming all the way. I wish it weren't true, but it is. Time for a good old-fashioned intolerance off. We passed a constitutional amendment that said not only can you not have same-sex marriage, you can't have any form of, of civil union that looks like a marriage. Mississippi was the last to ratify the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery. That's impressive. Alabama's constitution mandates separate schools for white and colored students. Uh, it still does. Did you say colored? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is going to be tough? It's going to be tough. Where does Alabama stand on sodomy? It's, it's a Class A misdemeanor in this state. In Mississippi, it's a felony. Are you serious? Yeah. I'm surprised a gay couple can get a fishing license in Mississippi, let alone a marriage license. You say a fisting license? Fishing license. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> All right. I just watched that, rewatched that, I don't know, half an hour ago, and I'm laughing yet again. So, um, Miles Cotton, these pieces are really interesting. They're done with a correspondent. Um, there's at least to the watcher, a less of an involvement uh, by John Stewart himself than one you know sees with anything else that's on the Daily Show. So, so how does it evolve? Where where does a piece like that come from? How, how much of the John Stewart thumbprint is actually secretly there? John John certainly uh, has his thumbprint on everything that goes on that show. There's really nothing that doesn't go through his filter before it gets on air. He, he is he is extremely involved in every aspect of that show. That said, uh, the field pieces in the field department where I worked for about nine years, we were a tad more autonomous because we're in the field, because I was in Alabama, Mississippi. And he, he can't rewrite jokes on the spot on location with me. So uh, he was a big part of the process as far as approving the pitch and, and giving us notes on it and giving us direction and going back and forth. And you know, we go through a pretty strenuous outlining uh, phase before we ever get into the field and, and really try to plan out our, our shoots uh, before we ever leave. 
so John is a big part of that process as much as he can be, but you know, he certainly he has his day to day just putting the show on the air. So we we have that. I always really like the job because it gave us a little bit more autonomy, and then we'd come back, and then that autonomy could maybe bite you in the ass if John didn't like what you came back with. <laughs> Uh, and then we spend a lot of time trying to fix it in the edit, or or he's happy, and then everybody's happy. Uh, that particular piece came from uh, Nate Silver, who we did interview on the piece. He, I guess he had kind of done some sort of statistical analysis of, of which state would probably be the last to, uh, to I, I guess, to, to approve of gay marriage legally. Um, and we just thought we'd have this 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 sort of fun. Let's let's look at both states and let's see who's who's more intolerant. And we we didn't and, play that part of it, but Nate Silver clearly agreed to be smacked around a little bit uh, comically in the he's piece a, too. He's a good sport. Yeah, we saw with him several times. So David met, David Fulkin, look, I just want to uh, ask you what the how these pieces sound to you. They really are kind of different from the rest of the Stewart show, and in a way, so much of John Stewart's thing was often to bring somebody pretty powerful on the air towards the end of the show, and then maybe go toe to toe with them. Uh, maybe cuff them around a little bit, maybe not. These are sort of different. A lot of these pieces, they, they, they actually involve the average person in a different way. And, and part of what's going on with the audience is uh, the audience thinking, really, you've got somebody to go along with this? I mean, it feels like a different style of commentary somehow. Or does it st- strike you, David, as just part of the whole in, in, in a way that connects pretty well to everything else? Well, it's part of the idea that stretching uh, the the conceit that somehow this is a bizarre world newscast, mm-hmm. right? So you've got the the bizarre world anchor and John Stewart, and then the the correspondents themselves who are seemingly uh, you know neutral truth seekers, but actually you know could be a pretty randy. Uh, uh, you know, self-aggrandizers. If it's Jason Jones, uh, there was a, a phenomenal piece uh, Asif Manvi did with, with you know, in some ways a relatively small potato, right? A, a local uh, Republican Party official in North Carolina who, uh, you know, said increasingly uh, objectively uh, uh, racist things. You know, and at a certain point, just arched his uh, eyebrow at the camera and finally said, "You do understand? I can hear you, right?" Yes. And you know, there was another one where. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Jason Jones. It might have been someone else. It was a brilliant piece about uh, these guys protesting. Uh, the union was protesting something, I believe, in Nevada. And that it was, turned uh, out that, that – That was awesome, yeah. May I just salute you? That was one of the best pieces I remember in years. And it was it was a great piece. Uh, hey, let, let me let you set it up. Well, yeah, no, that was that was a surprise. You know, you sit down with a guy and, and you design a piece and you think it's going to work. And it worked much better than we thought because we – the whole idea was that the, the union, the local union, was paying non-union people to protest on their behalf on the street to walk around with signs. And, and that was just so egregious to us on its face that you couldn't even get your, your paying members to go and protest and that you're paying non-union people the minimum wage with no breaks in the sun in 100-degree weather to protest. So you organized them. <laughs> um, we kind of did in a way, actually. We ultimately got better pay after that. But, yeah, we sat down with the union guy the first half of the interview was talking about how great the union was. But why do we need a union? Why is it great? Kind of had him kind of extol the, the, the benefits of what of what he does. And then Asif uh, leaves the interview. He goes down to see these guys, learns that they're, they're non-union guys, comes back and sits down and says, hey, we got to go straighten out that, that, that protest down there. They're non-union guys. Oh, I know. Wait, you know? And then we catch him in this, this fun little circle of land. He was sadly unprepared and, and, and oh he was like Nixon like flop sweat on this guy it was yeah, fantastic it and, uh, and well, it also 
Let me just salute you also. This is something where you're going after unions, seemingly one of these, uh, you know, sacred cows of the left. And, you know, you're exposing hypocrisy and yet it's hilarious. I mean, it was one laugh after another. So that that's in some ways the best of what you guys can do in the field field reports, it seems to me. Yeah, we didn't. We always strive to kind of find stories that that were that were uh, that attacked anybody. It, you know, it wasn't about just attacking right wing. You know, anti you know anti gay people. It was about when there's hypocrisy in, in a union world. That, that anything was game as long as there was something that was egregious or outrageous. That's kind of what we went after any topic. So whenever I think we always brush up against this idea that we're this liberal bastion or this democratic voice, and I say, well. It's not really true. If you really look at our track record, I, I think that we we're critical against things that we're critical against. But it's not a political, ideological show in that sense. You know, Bill Curry, this isn't a tradition. You know, we've talked about the fact that what The Daily Show did, at least at the top of the show every night, is take something that was a pretty neutered thing. You know, Saturday Night Live it was set up punchline, set up punchline. There really wasn't you know, a whole lot of meat to their political criticism. That For the most part, political humor on television was, has never really been as meaty as Jon Stewart and The Daily Show made it. This is a, sort of another tradition, right? Found comedy. Uh, Alan Fund invented Candid Camera, and Michael Moore and people like that have messed around with this a little bit. But Sasha seemed, Baron Cohen. Sasha Baron Cohen, another example. Somehow or other, there's a focus to this, though. There's a way that, that, that this lasers in. I, I don't know. Do you, do you have a theory about it? You know, I, 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 only one observation, and again, also to say to Miles, I, I was just so amazed at how well they made these things work. Uh, with uh, almost, you know, it seemed like so many of them had someone, they were interviewing someone who would be hostile to the point they were making, whose interests were being destroyed by their very presence, and yet they got enough cooperation, were able to put put together a piece out in the field with all the the, the un, unforeseen variables that, that, that arise and make the thing work. So, uh, again, also, I mean, hats off. Hats off to you. Sometimes it was, it, part of the humor was closer to a more traditional humor, which is, isn't this weird? You know, and, you know, you had in, in, in the line from Bob Hope making a joke about Eisenhower's golf swing to The Daily Show uh, questioning the underlying premises of American foreign policy. It's a long line and there are all kinds of different shadings in there. But these guys had the isn't the world weird. But like the entire show, they also got to the underlying point every time, you know, virtually that I saw. It was never just isn't this person pathetic. It was never just making fun. There was always a, a, a genuine political point to be made uh, beneath it. We've got to grab a break here, but before we do, uh, Miles, there's one thing that I, I, I was trying to think of some ways in which Jon Stewart is underrated, and it's with all the, uh, you know, encomia being heaped on him uh, the last few weeks, it's kind of hard to do that. But one of the things that, that a lot of the correspondent pieces um, involved, a, a field piece maybe at the end, you'd see the correspondent at the desk with Stewart, and then there were, of course, other correspondent pieces or, or contributors pieces where just somebody would come to the desk with Stewart, whether it was John Hodgman or somebody else. And and at that point, Stewart had to switch to straight man. Here's this guy, this superbly yeah. equipped uh, comedian who, who really, you know, uh, earlier in the show, I was just talking about the skill level as a comic that he has is just really uh, almost possible to ignore sometimes because of the important points that he's making. But then he would just become Stephen Colbert's or Steve Carell's or Samantha Bee's or Kristen Schaal's straight man. And he was really good at it. Is that something that I don't, were, were people around the shop kind of aware, aware of that? Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think he, even John, and I, I can't speak for John, but I think it was it could be frustrating for him at times. He wanted to have fun with the joke. He wanted to 
he wanted to have every part of that joke as well. Like he wanted to be in, in on the game. And so he, he knew how to play the straight man brilliantly and he was great at it. And I think sometimes I would see it where I think he'd be frustrated that he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't also deliver the punchline. He had to be the fed up guy. Uh, but he knew he knew his role in those bits. He knew that's how the bit had to work. He's a studied comedian. He, 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 he made it work. I will never forget at the end of one of Colbert's pieces, um, Stewart asking some kind of very idealistic sounding question and, and Colbert looking at him and saying, John, you are adorable. Um, <laughs> all right. We have to take a quick break. We'll come back after this. All right, we're back. We're uh, talking about uh, John Stewart, who did his last show last night, uh, ended his career to the strains of uh, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, something that I suppose everybody should have seen coming. I didn't, actually. Um, all right, so David Folkenflik, I, I know you want to talk a little bit about uh, Stewart's studio of Rembrandt, this kind of idea that John Stewart, in addition to everything else, as he leaves, he's walking away from this comedy diaspora that has just spread out uh, in, a, in a lot of different places, that, that he's... He's actually built up a style of comedy that's now going to take seed in lots of places, right? Well, from hagiography to diaspora, I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, look, I think one of the amazing things about him is he's been a tremendous cultivator of talent. Uh, you look at people who have uh, arisen uh, and, and done well. It's Stephen Colbert, uh, perhaps first among equals, uh, really his his peer in, in all ways. Steve Carell, a tremendous talent who decided not to do political satire but become a comedic force in Hollywood and really did tremendously. Ed Helms, similarly. But John Oliver, in some ways, you know, Trevor Noah, you know, a, a new uh, face and voice for most Americans, and I'm, I'm interested in seeing how he does. Uh, but uh, Oliver, in some ways, has replaced uh, John Stewart or succeeded John Stewart in a different venue, slightly different format, as he joked with Stewart last night, you know, it really takes 18 to 20 minutes to tell a joke, and, and what's this thing called a commercial? Because, of course, uh, HBO allows him to go on uh, whatever length rant he wants, and there's no fear of being interrupted. But but Oliver, I think, doing a tremendous job that is uh, simpatico with what, uh, with what Stewart was trying to do. Uh, Larry Wilmore taking over for Colbert. Uh, Stewart, I think, was a, a you know great influence in that choice. Wilmore, you know, having a tremendous career uh, uh, in helping develop sitcoms in Hollywood and being a comic writer and and stand up. But this is uh, a new thing for him to be really the the personality and the face. And I think Stewart encouraged that. So although there's been some criticism about the number of people of color, you know, you have people like Asif Manvi who's who's going on to do. Things. He's got a series on HBO now, The Brink, and is is developing other projects. There are just a lot of people who I think are at the forefront of American comedy in various guises, but also uh, uh, and, and pop culture, but also in terms of thinking about things from a, a politically satiric standpoint that Stewart has had a role in influencing. And just as we think of Judd Apatow as having kind of a school of comedy out West, uh, developing uh, people like Seth Rogen and uh, uh, you know, just Jonah Hill and all these guys into having a kind of school of comedy where you can tell the cadence and the rhythm and the patterns and the quirky uh, uh, off-kilter takes of it. I think Stewart has, has done that as well in his own way. And I think it's it's to his credit that he's generous and not threatened by that. There are a lot of folks, you see it in some ways in the news side as much as the entertainment side. There are a lot of folks who want to make sure nobody is 
able, is equipped, is experienced enough to replace them because they're fearful and insecure. Stewart, I think, is the opposite. He's grooming people to go on and flourish even beyond him. Right. He's the opposite of the Larry Sanders character who was so worried about Jon Stewart. So, Miles, That's right. Miles, you've you've worked with so many of these people who are in this comedy school, and I know you feel as though maybe Jason Jones and Samantha Bee, who are sort of the Lucy and Desi of the, of the Daily Show, they're a married couple, maybe they're the next to break out, maybe they're not the ones who are getting as much uh, profiling and credit as the people that David just mentioned. How do they feel about what they're doing? Do they feel they're, they're at a school of comedy? How do they feel about what they're doing as they move through that process? I, I think so. I think it, it, there's definitely, uh, like, look, I was there last night with, with correspondents I hadn't seen in a while that I worked with for, you know, all, over the past decade, and Rob Cordry and Nate Cordry and, and Ed and Rob Riggle and Olivia, all these people that kind of came through the door, some stayed longer than others, you know, some were there just for a short time, like Josh Gad. Uh, but there's a huge sense of community, and that's what I really got from last night is seeing all those people in the, the first act of the of the show is, was, my God, we really – we really have created this community. So I, I think I, I think your point is, is correct in that. I think for Jason and Sam, uh, they're I think people don't even realize that Sam's the, the longest serving correspondent ever. Jason Jones has done more field pieces than any other correspondent. Their skill level is is incredible. And yeah, I think they're definitely the next to sort of burst out onto the scene, uh, following I guess, you know, Ed and, and, and Steve Carell and Colbert and all those guys. Jason's got a new sitcom, and Sam's got. She's actually going to do her own late night show on TBS, uh, kind of kind of dipping her toe back into political waters, somewhat and social waters. And uh, uh, I think we all learned, you know, we all learned so many good lessons from John. I think that was just because he challenged himself and he worked hard and forced us to work hard. All right, Bill Curry, you get the last word, but it has to be forty-five seconds. But just you know, think, listen to to what both these guys just said that. Uh, you know, Lenny Bruce uh, it was destroyed for getting close to the bone, and Mort Saul was exiled, and the Smothers Brothers were run off the air. The first fake news show was that was the week that was. It lasted 18 months. That this guy did 17 years of this quality, and not only it turned, you know, he was able to be this much of a critic and still host the Oscars, and turn and and not only sustain a show of that high quality, but turn it into a cottage industry uh, uh, with with a half dozen uh, legitimate successors running around. He really deserves the attention he's gotten. This really has been, I think, a milestone. It didn't change the political debate. It, it didn't redirect the political debate, but it at least slowed down the erosion, and it, and it reminded people that there are better standards. Good for him. Hey, I have to quickly mention something. there. I get in a lot of trouble. Speaking of comedy, I will be performing tonight at Billings Forge with CT Improv at 8 p.m. It's $10. It's comedy. Uh, come see us. Uh, don't bring your children. I'm going to use a lot of bad words. I'm going to say a lot of bad things, but not about Jonathan McNichol. He's the guy who produced today's show and conceived of it and got all these great guests. Thank you so much, David Fulkenflick. It's always an honor to have you on the show. Betsy Kaplan is on the board, uh, and it's Alex Dubin on the phones today. Thanks to all of you. We'll be back on Monday with a brand new show. Thank you, Miles Kahn from the uh, the Daily Show. It's Pedialyte and saltines for the next three hours. Then you can start eating solid food, I'm sure. Uh, and thanks for joining us today. 